I'm going to dive right in this morning, and the reason is uh, we have in front of us an opportunity once again to come to the Lord's table. And so today's sermon is going to be a tad bit different than what we would normally experience in a sermon. Normally, we, what we try to do here, whether it's Todd or Darwin or me or whoever is here, what we try to do is to say, okay, let's take a portion of the scriptures, let's make our way through the text, uh, and we're going to do that in what's called an exegetical fashion. And so we're trying to say, well, what is the Bible saying? How can I pull the principles out and then hand them to all of us in a way, hopefully, that is somewhat compelling and applied to life, et cetera, et cetera. And so I don't want to get away from that completely, but what we do want to do is we're looking at this series. We said, we've got a week over here, and it's going to be on this week that we've got communion, and I think we can pull this off. And, and we're going to do something a little bit different, which is I'm going to talk to you about why are some of the reasons why we should take the, the book of Joshua as a historical fact. It's not going to be an apologetic um, fully. We're going to look at, the, uh, at some texts here, um, but it is um, a little more honed in looking at some of the more specific things that we've looked at thus far and then asking this question, should we really believe this? It has been my privilege over the years to meet with many folks, whether it be a breakfast or lunch, it could be at late at night, in which someone is asking questions about the validity of the Bible. Is the Christian faith something that should be taken seriously? And the question that I get more than any other is, David, how can you take the Bible to be literal? And so in the book of Joshua, in case you weren't paying attention, we have already looked at a couple of different stories that to a person who does not already come with a presupposition, which is what God's people typically, we come with a presupposition that God is God. And if he says it in here, then it happened. And we should take it as a fact unless God gives us clues in the text that we should take it as non-literal. Someone who does not come with that presupposition, we have to acknowledge and admit, boy, this seems like a big pill to swallow. Now, the ultimate example doesn't come uh, in this book. It comes later on down the road when Jesus himself is dead, according to the scriptures, on a Friday, and then he comes back to life again on a Sunday. That's the ultimate question that we have to deal with. But in the book of Joshua, there are a few things. Why should we take this as serious? You remember there was a parting of a water, a large body of water. It said that it was actually a ways back upstream that the water had stopped up there, and then massive amounts of people make their way across um, to get it. You remember that there was this battle that took place, and as they were making their way into the town of Jericho, and that there were the worshipers were leading the way, and then they just began to shout at a certain point, and then the walls just fell. You remember that there's a time in which it says that the sun appears as though it stands still in the sky. If you are not someone who is coming with the same presuppositions as a Christian, you got to admit, this is a difficult pill to swallow. That there are rational people in the world who really believe that this took place in, in time and space. Yes, we do. And what I'd love to do is just to walk you through some of the reasons why we think that this is uh, reasonable for us. Here's a word I would love for us to take out with us today. Um, we have a reasonable faith. It is not a faith that defies reason. There are reasons why intelligent men and women throughout the ages 
have put their trust into something that without God's direct intervention clearly would not happen under the normal laws of the universe. We have reasons to believe that we should take this um, seriously. I'm going to read once again where uh, the same passage that we read uh, last week, and I just want to uh, sit on something here. So skip all the way down to chapter 10, and I go all the way down to verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and the moon in the valley of Ajon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Remember the, the context. This is where uh, the people had deceived Joshua into believing that they were the, uh, those from far off land that made a covenant with them. And so it is now upon, the, it's the responsibility of the Israelite people to come to the aid when these folks would have been in need. And so this is exactly what happens. It's the surrounding kings decide to come and to band together and to go against the people who were uh, being friendly to and enter into a covenant relationship with Joshua and the Israelites. And so these folks call out, folks at Gibeon, call out to Joshua, come and help us fulfill your promise. Joshua says, we're there. And Joshua this time prayed and the Lord said, go, because I'm delivering them over into your hands. And so they begin fighting. And what the scripture tells us is that at some point, Joshua looks out across this landscape and says, we're winning this thing. But doggone it, we need more time. Sounds like a coach at practice. We just need more daylight. Didn't have General Electric Power Company. Duke Energy wasn't there. They didn't have lights that they could just get and put out there on the field and get going. And so Joshua, had this, so he looks up and says, God, would you just give us more time? God says, sure. That's a McNeely paraphrase. And then what the scriptures say is it is as if the sun stands still. How in the world do we take something like that and say, yeah, it's reasonable to believe that that happened? That for approximately a day, the sun just stood right there. Do you know what would happen to the earth if the earth were to stop its rotation? Do you know what would happen to the seas, what would the moon, all of the stuff that the earth needs because guess who set the system up like he set it up? So the very system that he created, what would happen if he just all of a sudden suspended the laws of all physics just so that some dudes could win a battle? Now, what is it that um, happened? There are three basic interpretations of Joshua's long day that Christians have uh, 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 thought about, listened to, tried to, uh, to contemplate. The first is it, that we should take this as a poetic interpretation. This story is poetry, and it is not to be taken literally. The sun only seemed to stand still because of the weariness of the soldiers and the heat of the battle. I will tell you, this is the least likely of the options that we should choose. 
There's nothing in the text that leads us to believe that the writer is writing in a poetic fashion. When the writer writes in a poetic fashion, they give us clues and indications in the scriptures. One of the Psalms, for example, says that the Lord sits on the clouds. He rides the clouds. Now, why should we not take that literally? Because it's in a book of poetry. There are clues all throughout the scriptures. Some of them are not as subtle. Other ones are hitting you flat in the face. There's nothing in this text that would lead us to believe that we should take this as poetry. Please hear me. Those who choose to believe this, I am not saying that they are stupid. I'm not saying they have less character. I'm not saying that they love Jesus less. I'm saying I think it's the worst option to choose. Another option that is... Uh, 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 been throughout for a long period of time is that this was, it's called the total eclipse view. On the basis of the Babylonian astronomical texts, the words standstill, which is in verse 12, are rendered become dark or uh, eclipsed. While I think there is a little more credibility to this, I don't think uh, as well that the scripture is leading us to believe that this is the way that we should take it. The reason I think so is because the scriptures in here tell us that it seems as if the sun is standing still for the people while they are fighting. Third view. The prolongation of light view. Don't you like how theologians come up with these names? The prolongation of light view. And this is where the passage is to be taken literally. It is to mean that Joshua was miraculously allowed to complete the battle before darkness set in. Now, I wanted to start out with one of the harder ones, as we're going to get to this morning, because um, uh, here is what I I think we should understand. I have no idea how God did this. Literally none whatsoever. There's all kind of views out there that says there's some ways that God was reflecting light. And so while the earth was still spinning, and so he's bouncing some things off. And there was comets that came in. There's other stars that aligned. And there was this, that, and the other, some big, tall giraffes had mirror-like things. And had, there's all kinds of theories that are out there. I have no idea how God made it as though uh, the sun were to stand still, to seem like it stands still. I fully acknowledge that the laws of the physical universe are, are intact. Now, you ready for this? Here's why for me, though, personally, I have no problem believing that God could have suspended for a moment all of the laws of the universe because he's the one that created all of the laws of the universe. And if God could make it such that someone years down the road would die and no brainwave activity and no heartbeat, and would be into a tomb, would be there on a Friday, put in there, in there all day on Saturday, and at some point early on Sunday morning, would, through the help of no other human intervention, get up and walk out on his own. I personally don't have a problem believing that God could stop the laws of the universe. However, I recognize that there are many that just simply can't accept that. It's okay. It's an intellectual hurdle. Ready for one more, though? I know that we have, for example, the, the earth and it was, as it was created. And so there's all kinds of debates that take place amongst 
Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians that say, well, I think it was six literal days. Others say, I don't think it was six literal days. I think it took place over a much longer period of time. And there's all sorts of debates. Do you know that our denomination has come up with six acceptable views? There's six different views you can have that are acceptable. You can still be a Bible-believing Christian, accept the inerrancy and infallibility of the Scriptures, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I think. I have no problem believing that if God could reach his hands into the dirt and form and fashion a male and then hover over him, breathe into his nostrils the life as the word, uh, the breath of God went into this individual and brought him to life. And when Adam was created, it sure seems as though he was created as a fully mature human capable of reproduction. In other words, he didn't go through the normal process that the rest of humanity, including Jesus, went through, and that is being born and then going through those awkward phases where you, 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 Jesus didn't go through the rebellion side of it, but I'm sure he went through all the phases. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. Adam didn't go through any of those phases because God created him fully mature and had all the appearances of being however old. Let's just call it 25 because I think that's a cool age. When God created Eve, he takes a portion of Adam. I think it's an actual rib. There's a chance that it's a much bigger uh, part that God lops off, but I, I think it's a rib that God takes out of Adam, and, and he creates Eve. He forms and fashions her, breathes life into her as well, and he creates her with all the appearances of being 23. Because typically girls marry guys that are older because y'all are just mature quicker than we do. If God can make them as if they had all the appearances of going through the normal processes, then why could he not do that with the earth? I have no idea what God, but if I can believe that God created the earth and that God raised somebody from dead, I just don't have a problem believing that God did something to make the sun stay there so that people can move forward in battle. Now, that's the hardest one to deal with. What about the crossing of the Jordan? How in the world could we believe that this crossing could actually take place? And, and, and why would we uh, believe that this story should be, uh, should be taken uh, literally in there? Do you know that there is now all kinds of research that has been done? There's historical records that confirm that mudslides in this area at several times over the years temporarily dam up the river. Historical documents let us know that at that very location on the Jordan, in the year 1160, in the year 1267, 1546, 1834, 1906, and 1927, that mudslides happened and it dammed up the Jordan. If you're a skeptic, then you would say, well, that's awfully convenient that that happened at that time, didn't it? Well, not really for me. I fully admit that I have presuppositions. I have a full bias. I believe that the God of the universe, who controls all nature, could have caused a mudslide at that exact time in history so that his people could cross over into the Jordan to fulfill the promise that he made to uh, uh, the, the people before, who had gone before Joshua, that he's going to give them this land. It's going to be an inheritance to it. Here's the thing. The question is for us, is it, did it actually happen? I will tell you there's going to be all kinds of evidences that we can give that make it plausible that this could occur. But please hear me. 
It all comes down to your presuppositions. Every bit of it. See, archaeology, which I'm going to give you some in just a moment. Archaeology, um, which uh, in the 1800s became uh, far more um, of, a, of a science, uh, doing something um, uh, here in this area. Uh, archaeology um, is going to give us several reasons why we should take this story as being historically accurate. But in all of the archaeology, there are two schools of thought towards it. One school of thought says, I'm looking for reasons to prove it did not happen. The other one is saying, I'm looking for reasons to believe that it happened. And these two approaches towards it are going to determine everything. Same archaeology, same discoveries, different conclusions. So when I'm meeting with an individual who is a self-professed skeptic, please hear me, I've said this many times before, skeptics are my friends. I like skeptics. I like folks who are saying, I need to have some reason to believe X, Y, and Z. I think that's a good and reasonable thing. I don't particularly enjoy um, uh, talking to and debating cynics. A cynic is one who has the information, and yet no matter what the information is, refuses to believe in the possibility of anything because of their presupposition. Ten discoveries. Ten discoveries that have been found in the last, really since the 1930s. First, there are burn layers at Jericho I and at Hazer. Now, just to let you know, this is very controversial. The burn layers that are existing there in the archaeological digs have found um, that clearly a significant burn happened in each of these three cities. The scriptures indicate in the book of Joshua that, that Joshua burned these three locations. They're the only ones that they did this with. Now, the controversy is not over whether or not it was burned. The controversy is over when it was burned. And much of this is based on carbon dating. Carbon dating has its advantages and has its disadvantages, has its pluses and has its minuses. But what we do know is this. Uh, the, uh, the debate specifically uh, regarding um, Jericho, again, not whether or not it was burned, just simply when it was burned. Second discovery is the walls of Jericho. This is also fairly controversial. The walls of the Jericho, according to the scriptures, said that they fall down. Uh, in the 1930s, there was an individual who went and uh, discovered this, and uh, they found that the walls there, uh, there was a wall based on the layers that there, there was a wall that was on the outside and there was a wall that was just beforehand. And the wall, this mud brick wall had fallen on top of this other wall. And what it did was it created a ramp-like environment for a people to come into the city and to overtake it. Now, when you hear that, what does that seem to tell you? It tells me it seems as though it would have been God bringing this about exactly like he said he was so that the people could make their way into it. Joshua 6 tells us that those walls fell. The third great discovery is the city gate at Ai. In Joshua 7 through 8, when they talk about Ai, specifically in 829, it talks about the city gate there in Ai. We didn't know that there was a place named this, but one of the six socket stones from the city gate has been discovered and has been identified in this particular time period um, as well. The Jabin tablets. 
The Jabin tablets are cuneiform tablets that are addressed to King Jabin. Now, here's the thing. It follows or it, it, it uh, um, spans over 400 years of time. So either this king was really, really old or the more likely thing is that just as though there was a pharaoh, there were multiple pharaohs, there were multiple Jabins. It seems to be a dynastic title that was given um, to them. Shechem Standing Stone, it is the stone we think that is spoken of in Joshua 24, which we'll get to obviously at a later time. That standing stone is still there to this day, and it sure seems as though it's the stone that, that Joshua is, is speaking specifically about um, when he delivers his farewell address to them. There is uh, a change in the culture in Canaan, according to archaeologists, and it is a change in uh, the material uh, culture that's there. So in other words, some of the uh, 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 pottery, uh, uh, cups, etc., things that they have discovered, there seems to be a shift from the Canaanite people to another group of inhabitants at the same time that the Bible says the people were making their way into that culture. There's new worship that takes place at Shiloh. There were Ammonite practices, the uh, worship practices, there's all kind of evidence for that, and there seems to be a change in those worship practices. Uh, there's a structure that actually mirrors the dimensions of the tabernacle that is spoken of. Uh, Joshua 18.1 um, uh, indicates, uh, at least we then. The last three are my favorites. There are Egyptian inscriptions that, are, that places Israel um, in Can uh, Canaan. There is multiple pharaohs that identify that this group of Israelites were there in uh, the land of Canaan, that, um, that one of those inscriptions is in a museum today in Germany for anybody to go and uh, to view and see. Um, but the very fact that they're saying that Israelite people are in this place at this time that the Bible says was there, even though modern archaeology says we have no reason whatsoever to believe that this ever, this conquest ever took place. The Armana tablets, which are in the British Museum, uh, this is where uh, in the surrounding areas um, they had, uh, there were the, the people were reaching out uh, to Pharaoh and they were saying, will you please come and help us with these nomads that are attacking us and taking over? And they write in there to complain, why are you not coming to our rescue in essence? Now, if a generation before this Israelite trained army had been drowned into a sea, then they would not have had the resources by which to help those as they were reaching out and asking for help. The final one is there is an altar on Mount Ebal. This altar has been discovered and has been, again, all of them that I'm giving to you are documented. These are, uh, has been discovered now and um, this is the, the, the place where Joshua is reading the curses. You got one side reading the blessing and one side reading the curses. And this altar that's in here meets the description that is laid out for in, in the book of Joshua. Now, all of these things I can give you much more detail on. But I'm telling you, as people approach these facts, one group will say it's not enough. The 
archaeologists who went in in the 30s uh, came to the conclusion that there's no way that this particular, that uh, the, the, the destruction of the, the uh, surrounding areas, the conquest of the land, could not have taken place when the Bible says that it takes place. And the reason that this archaeologist came to this conclusion is because of pottery that was not there. Because there should have been, in her mind, pottery should have been uh, brought to this area, but it simply um, was not there. But, but here's what we have to keep in mind. Um, Joshua and the people only went in and burned three cities. They only destroyed three cities. So rather than bring in their stuff, which they probably didn't have time to make, they would have just used that which was already been, uh, being used by the group of the people uh, that were there. Let me read this to you because I think this will help um, uh, bring some of this into, into focus. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18, it says this, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, uh, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practice that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord. They were to go in and they were to take over these people, but what they were going to do with the other places that were around was live in houses that they did not build. Live off of the resources, the gardens that they did not plant. So they were taking over that which was already given to them. So the archaeologist came to the conclusion, I'm going to declare that there's no way that it could have happened during this time because of pottery that was not there. Not from discoveries that were made, but from a discovery that was not made. I can give you all of the archaeological evidence. It ultimately won't mean a thing. It simply comes down to what are your presuppositions. One final issue to look at um, here before we make our way in the upcoming weeks. I'm in there. The two greatest reasons why the skeptic says, I just can't trust the book of Joshua is because of the historicity, the archaeology, et cetera, that says there's no way this could have happened. But the second one is far more personal. And that is this, what about the ethical issues of destroying a group of people? How could God declare that he is a good God while simultaneously calling for the destruction of a group of people? I want to address this as best as I possibly can. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, describes the book of Joshua as a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish in which it does so. There are, I think, three aspects of God's character that we can see. The goal of any book of the Bible is to put on display who God is and what he does. The Bible is God's revelation of himself, his plan of salvation, etc., to us. And so there are three aspects of God's character that we get to see in this book of Joshua. The first one is the holiness of God. These are not the only things that we see. We could make another list, but the holiness of God is one aspect of it we get to see in here. And the thought of, of sin being offensive to God, um, uh, we like it when it is sin that we don't commit. But when it is sin that we are guilty of, um, we get far more defensive um, and, and now begin to make judgments about God based on what we want him to be. 
God is holy. The issue in the book of Joshua is not Israel versus Canaan. It is God against wickedness. Genesis 15, 16, when God is laying out this future vision for Abraham, remember he puts him to sleep. He's called Abram at that point. And then he wakes him up with this smoking fire pot as they're making a, a way into a covenant together. And God makes this statement. They, meaning his people, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. For 400 years, God is patient and he is not carrying out his righteous wrath on a people that have earned God's wrath. He has not carried it out on this group for 400 years. For decades, the people knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were there, for example, in Jericho. In this Canaanite land, word went there. The word or reputation of God went forward, and they had an opportunity to repent. But they chose not to. This is the holiness of God. This is not, again, Israel versus Canaan. It's God versus wickedness. So the holiness of God is what we get to see. The second thing we get to see is the wrath of God. But please note this. The wrath of God is limited in its scope and in its duration. It would not be fair to call this genocide. God calls them to utterly wipe out, to completely destroy, and to burn down three particular locations. Would it help you at all to know that some of these locations, they were sacrificing children, quite literally, placing them up on an altar? If I were to walk you through all of the evils, it might make you feel a tad bit better, but it still doesn't address the question of why would a good God carry out this kind of vengeance? It goes back to number one, because he is holy and he hates sin far more than we do. And he is, in fact, a God of justice. God is not a God who will look back and let, let whatever is going to happen happen over and over and over again. He will be patient. He will wait. He will call to repentance. But there will come a time in which he will deal uh, matters in a just manner. So we see the holiness of God and we see the wrath of God. Finally, and this is where I close, we see the love of God. The love of God is always the offer that's on the table throughout the book of Joshua. It is not just the foreign people who are going to experience the wrath and judgment of God. In the book of Judges, it's going to be the people of God. God is not partial. He is impartial. And the love of God is always on the table. The invitation was always there for people to come and to embrace, to turn from their ways, to turn towards a God. And God was always willing to make initial war so that there might be long-term peace. So God sends his people. He sends his reputation. He sends them into a world so that they might carry out his will in this era. But let me tell you, the, 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 what the people in the book of Joshua did is no different than what we're called to do today. We are called to make our way all throughout the culture. And we are called to draw people's attention to the holiness of God, to the wrath of God, to the justice of God, but ultimately to the goodness of God. And we are called to make our way all throughout the cultures and to say the shame that you're dealing with, the guilt that you're dealing with, there is a better way to handle it. Jesus, who took on the wrath of God, 
who took on the justice of God. All of his anger, all of his wrath poured out on Jesus onto a cross so that all who would come to him can in turn experience the peace of God because they'll have peace with God. See, what the book of Joshua ultimately is trying to tell us is this, is that God is going to advance his kingdom all throughout the world. And there ultimately is coming a day in which God will reign, he will rule. There will be no question who is in charge. There's coming a day in which the skies will rip open and Jesus will make his way to earth. And according to the book of Revelation and other passages, Jesus is going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. We should not take that literally. He's going to have blood on his chest. We should not take that literally. What it is is symbolism that Jesus is coming at that time, his second return, not to bring peace, but to bring ultimate judgment. And so come, repent, turn your life over to the person of God, and in return, you will receive his grace, his mercy, his peace, his, his, all that God, you will now have in exchange, you just give God all of your sin. That's the message that we're called to. And so here's what it comes down to for you and for me. Do I believe that the book of Joshua was given so that we might have a fun little story, a bloody story, about how some angry people took over a region of the earth? Or is God saying something to us in Joshua, fulfilling a promise that he'd be given to the people for but is he ultimately trying to tell us that there is a day that is coming in which he is going to be the ultimate warrior? 